welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, if you were open up your uh, Bible, uh, your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, I'll also make mention, uh, if you showed up today and forgot to bring food for the potluck, the fellowship potluck before the game, I'm told there's all kinds of food out there. Please please join us if you're able to stay, and uh, it'll be a wonderful time of fellowship. We'd love to have you. Also, uh, as you open to Acts chapter 4, you have likely begun to recognize now by this point uh, the, the leading role that Peter played during the early formation of the church. You know, his prominence is unmistakable. It will remain uh, unmistakable, not exclusive, but uh, Peter will remain very prominent, clearly distinguished amongst the apostles throughout roughly the first half of the book of Acts while the new covenant is being announced to the Jew first. Then about midway through the book of Acts, Peter will also become the first to announce, uh, actually welcome the Gentiles into the church. But shortly thereafter, that baton is going to be handed off to a to a Pharisee who turned believer uh, named Saul. And following the Jerusalem Council, we'll learn a lot about that later, following the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, uh, Peter, Peter's name will never again appear in this book as that baton is handed off to Saul, who becomes uh, called Paul, who preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, for it is the power of God uh, unto salvation uh, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, Though the twelve apostles, though all twelve of them are, are clearly uh, and immediately engaged, fully engaged in the ministry, the book of Acts expects the reader to recognize that, that at least in respect to preaching, uh, early on the tip of the spear is all Peter. Early on it is Peter. Uh, folks, he is a rock. He is a rock. Uh, in fact, Jesus gave Peter that name. His original birth name was Simon, uh, but immediately after his brother Andrew took him to meet the Lord Jesus, even that first time, uh, the Gospel of John tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 42, it says, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And then the Bible also says, which is translated Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic. Peter or Petros is the Greek equivalent to that. Both names mean rock. As Jesus indicated, Peter becomes, ultimately becomes, a rock. His name implies that he and his testimony would be solid. It would become foundational for the church, which Christ himself promised to build, that is true to some extent of each of the apostles, of every apostle, all of Jesus' apostles. Ephesians tells us 
that, that this household of God, uh, Christ's church, is uh, Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There we see the chief cornerstone again. Um, Peter is a rock. He, he serves as part of that foundation, uh, uh, the temple that God is building. But Peter, Peter's preaching does not focus upon himself. Uh, no, rather his testimony is about the rock, the rock of salvation, which God has now in Acts established in Jesus Christ, uh, also identified by Peter in our passage as the chief cornerstone. There's lots of stones. There's a chief stone. Uh, There's a chief cornerstone, by the way, promised to Israel centuries early, earlier. Uh, that was revealed in our scripture reading from Psalm 118. Promised centuries earlier, and Jesus is the rock of salvation. Uh, he is rejected by the nation of Israel as far as a nation, not all individuals in Israel, but the nation uh, who were first invited. They were the first who were invited, uh, welcomed to become builders of God's temple. It is a spiritual temple. So as we read from Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, Peter and John, remember from last week, have been arrested uh, by the power of the Sadducees for the offense of preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Boy, pretty stiff one there. Uh, they have spent the night in jail, and this scene describes their morning interrogation and trial the next day. And while the most powerful religious leaders in Israel are, they're, well, they're going to do their best to attempt to neutralize Peter and John, uh, Peter is going to be putting them on trial. Uh, he's going to tell them, today is your chance to get a piece of the rock. Reading from verse 5, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health, speaking of the lame man who was healed in our previous context. Uh, then, then it points out this is where your Bible might have all capital letters quoting the Old Testament. Peter says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Well, as we, as we discovered last 
Sunday, uh, this ruling party described in verse 5, they, they're some tough customers. They have a lot of power. Very, very, very strong people in Israel. They are the priestly class, dominated by Sadducees, we learned last week. They don't believe in a resurrection nor in the afterlife. Uh, Notice, as I stated previously, verse 6 reminds us quite, quite a bit of detail last week if you want to go back and listen to the previous message about the Sadducees. Verse 6 reminds us that they had acquired their positions oh, through priestly descent. Yeah, they were born into it. These guys are all related. Uh, Caiaphas is the father-in-law of Annas. John is the son of uh, Annas, who later becomes high priest after Caiaphas. Uh, when When we think back to the merchants and the money changers in the temple, whom Jesus drove out of the temple, and how the chief priests and scribes, you know, they, they're so annoyed and they, they just began seeking ways at that point to destroy Jesus. Uh, it's these guys. It's these guys. And, and it's because temple religion had been transformed by these priests into a family business. What do you think of that? The priesthood became a, a moneymaker. It had been, been passed down through generations of family. I highlighted a few months ago how, how you're never going to see this with the apostles. Biological sons and daughters, uh, though sure, uh, surely some had uh, children, the apostles, uh, children of the apostles are never referenced in Scripture. Uh, Christ's church should never appear as one family is running everything, especially the finances. All right, uh, Christ's bride is also uh, isn't governed within one family through generations as it was in Israel. Uh, throughout church history, we observe that really uh, reputable and and. Uh, Talented preachers, uh, very often, if, if they're called, if they're the son of a preacher and they're called, uh, they will be called elsewhere. They, they don't just hop into dad's pulpit and keep the family tradition going. No, God will fulfill their calling elsewhere. Uh, John MacArthur is one whose dad was, I understand, a very solid preacher. John MacArthur struck out on his own. Because I'm going to go my own way and God's going to open that door. And he's had a very successful ministry uh, for decades um, here's the point. The priesthood had become uh, polluted with nepotism. You know, the church never gets uh, perpetua- uh, polluted and, and perpetuated through, through families with nepotism. There exists no birthright into the Christian ministry. Not true with Israel. Not true with Israel's Levitical priesthood. Being born into the priestly class, uh, these men had, had cultivated a class of societal privilege and wealth rather than humble service, and therefore morals of the priests had become warped, completely warped. It, it's not as if, it's not as if the Old Testament law of the priesthood, the Levitical law of the priesthood had failed, 
It's just that man completely fails again and again and again, especially those born dead in sin, dead in their trespasses and sin. Uh, you could only expect that depraved priests would find a way to take advantage of a priesthood, and a man is the one who failed to keep God's law. Thankfully, by God's grace, this is all changed now with the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and, and, and under the new covenant. No one is born into the priestly ministry. Rather, all are reborn by the Holy Spirit uh, and thereby enter into uh, the, same, uh, the same ministry the Apostle Paul describes in his, in his first epistle as what? A, a royal priesthood. You are a chosen race. You are people of a royal priesthood. You aren't born. This this is a major change now that is happening after Pentecost in Acts. You're no longer born a priest, and you're not a special class. We are all in Christ reborn into a royal priesthood for Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 ensures that rather than you know, offering up goats and lambs, that's not something we do anymore. Uh, no, he says we are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple. We are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God uh, through Jesus Christ. We're all part of the priesthood. This change in the priesthood, it's a major transition. As I said, we are, we are all equally by God's Spirit reborn into it. And we'll notice later in Acts that the you know, offices of spiritual leadership, they, they do exist. Uh, uh, shepherding and serving, elders and deacons. Scripture does give uh, criteria for those offices. There are, there are unique offices still, but it's never by birthright. You're never just born into it as it was with these Sadducees. A practical thing to consider, by the way, if you're a youth, talked a little bit, youth group last week, about uh, what you're going to pursue in your life. If, uh, if you are looking to pursue Christian ministry, uh, you have to understand that it's, it's no longer uh, something that you just choose on your own. Yeah, God may call you, uh, you may sense a call of God to go into Christian ministry, but we are all now part of the priesthood, and the church itself has has an affirmation. It is those around you who will verify that you have been called. They'll be able to say, no, we see this in you. You are being called uh, to preach, or you're being called as a missionary. Yes, God is working on your heart. Uh, but going into Christian ministry is affirmed by the body of Christ. How do they do that? Do you remember? How does, the, how does the church show that they have approved this individual uh, for Christian service? It's a laying on of hands. Yeah, we'll get into that later on in the book of Acts chapter 6 and 13. Paul and Barnabas uh, received the laying on of hands. That'll be a topic later. Um, the change of the priesthood, as I said, is a, is a major transition. But uh, by this point in Acts, the priesthood has changed. 
The Sadducees, they're priests of the tribe of Levi, they're descendants of the high priest Zadok, and they mistakenly believe that they still have power to retain and privilege to protect. It's to the point that they were even willing to crucify our Lord's Messiah in order to protect it. And they've placed Peter and John, we see in verse 7, in the center of of actually ends up being the court of the Sanhedrin, we'll find out later, and they're placed in the center for interrogation, and where the priests who act as justices are seated around them in a half circle or a U-shape, and Peter and John are placed in the center. Um, Has anyone here ever been to traffic court? Yeah. Uh, Standing in front of one judge is not very comfortable. Well, so I've been told. (laughs) Folks, this is the Supreme Court of Israel, and Peter and John are surrounded by the same 71 priests. 70 plus a high priest, 71 priests who convicted Jesus Christ of blasphemy for the purpose of handing him over to the Romans to be condemned and ultimately crucified. This this is the scene. This is high stakes. This is a high pressure situation for Peter and John. How do you think they should respond? How do you think Peter and John should respond here? This court is not a friendly audience. The nature nature of the question here is going to be tougher even than Larry King Live. Yeah. Do you think do you think Peter will respond? You know, Larry, I mean Annas, all right? You know, Annas. I'm very careful about saying who would or would not go to heaven. I don't know about other religions. I'm not God. Yeah, it's not my business to say who is and who isn't. Uh, You have your way. I have my way. I'm not going to let God. uh, I'm going to let God be the judge of that because I don't know for sure. Some of you recognize that is a near verbatim quote, almost verbatim of a quote-unquote gospel presentation made before our nation years ago on Larry King Live by a pastor, I think, at the time of the largest church in America. Yeah. Do you truly believe that anyone would accept Jesus through such a cowardly presentation? You know, suggesting, Larry, you know, I really can't know for sure. Folks, that is not building the church on the rock. That's not building God's house on the rock of salvation. I refuse to believe that that the sovereign Holy Spirit of God would find it in his divine pleasure to redeem and regenerate anyone through a gospel presentation that weak. Any testimony that declares the Son of God is, well, you know, just just one of many ways. I can't know for sure. Why do I find that hard to believe? 
Well, here's the reason. Here's the reason. Because never in Scripture do we ever find the gospel of Jesus Christ portrayed as one of several options. Never. Never. Jesus himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the reason that we preach Christ. In fact, I would suggest that if you, if you go to a church, one of the first litmus tests you can, you can ask the pastors there is like, do you believe Jesus is the only way? You know what happens to other cultures? Oh, yeah, we can't know for sure. Yeah, it's, it's time to keep on searching. Just keep moving on. Uh, scripture is very clear about this. Even if there were possibly any other single way to be saved, which there isn't, but even if there were possibly any other way, scripturally, it would have only been imaginable through Old Testament Israel, Old Covenant Judaism. But even the law is not a way because Jesus announced already in Matthew 5.17, I came not to abolish the law, but for the purpose of, of fulfilling Moses and the prophets. Remember our passage last week? They were declaring Moses and all the prophets to the Sadducees. Uh, and, and Peter says, Moses and all the prophets? pointed to this guy. They all pointed to Jesus as the answer for Israel. While on, while on earth, Christ warned the Jews. He said, you, you, search, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And he says, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Sounds like there's only one way. Folks, there exists no other way for Jews like Larry King or for anyone else in the world to be saved. It's only through trusting in, in the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, uh, Jesus Christ. That, that, that's it. If there were some other way, again, which there is not, but if there were any other way under heaven, for, for man's sin to be atoned for, for man's sin to be covered, it, folks, if there were another way, it would have been a misstep for the Father to allow man to do what they did to his Son. Other religions, Buddhism, Islam, folks, they do not provide an alternate way to heaven. Uh, Judaism never provided an alternate way. Rather, Old Testament Judaism pointed ahead to the way, Jesus Christ. If the Old Covenant had been sufficient, uh, there would have never been need for a new covenant and for the precious and spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, to die. If the law had been able to save, well, then, then God could have just perpetuated the law. 
And his son would have never had to gone to the cross. But the law never saved. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ. Uh, what was actually necessary under the old covenant uh, was for someone to come who would obey God's law perfectly so, th- so that the law would be fulfilled. Complete obedience without flaw and that that somebody would be punished for our sins, we who have disobeyed. That, that is the Messiah, God's own son. That was what was promised to Israel. Uh, I've mentioned this previously, but for those that may have recently joined us, ever since the fall in the Garden of the Eden, in the Garden of Eden, I, I, my tongue's tied today. I'm sorry. But ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, true believers like Adam and Eve and, and Abel, uh, they had been anticipating the seed the seed that would come and crush the serpent's head. By God's grace, throughout all mankind's history, uh, from the very beginning, all who have believed have believed in a Savior, a Messiah, a Christ who was to come. Uh, There has never existed under heaven any other way for man to be saved than through Jesus Christ. And on that cross he died, and the penalty for sin has been satisfied. The third day he arose again from the dead. Uh, There just is no other way, and Peter is not going to let this Sanhedrin off the hook. Folks, he's got them right in his crosshairs, and uh, right where he wants them, uh, they don't know it. They don't know it, but on this morning, all of these these men of high priestly descent uh, in Israel, they have appeared by divine subpoena, and they have been deposed by the sovereign creator of the universe. That is what has occurred in this court. They think that they've arrested somebody or two people, No, no, they have been deposed by God, and they are now a captive audience. Peter Peter has them pinned down like a butterfly to a butterfly board. They're his. He's going to be bold as a lion because Peter knows that God has sovereignly ordained this day's events. Folks, this is the same confidence you should have. When that neighbor knocks on your door and wants to borrow a hammer, or the nice new lady across the street invites you over for tea to spend a little time with her, folks, do you give them a piece of the rock? Those are sovereign ordained events for you and I to, to speak of the glories of Christ. I'm not talking about being obnoxious and persistent so much that, that you just drive them further from the truth, uh, or indefinitely holding up the line at Starbucks. You're not, not talking. Well, if you need to, you do what you have to do. Uh, but folks, seizing the moment in which Christ has placed you to proclaim the gospel and forgiveness of sins. 
Of course, always letting our speech be seasoned with grace. Always being winsome and loving. But even if the environment's a little uncomfortable, even if it's a little uncomfortable, are you going to take charge of it? Am I going to take charge of it? That's what's happening right here with Peter. He knows when the opportunity arises, it belongs to you. God owns it. So Peter answers their question in verse 7. As they began to inquire, you know, by what power or in what name have you done this? That's actually an indirect question by the, the high priests. They're, they're decided to, to avoid the primary charge. We're going to avoid that right now. Um, Peter and John were arrested, verse 2, uh, because they were teaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's why they're charged. But the Sadducees, they don't cite that uh, because they don't want a premature division on the court. See, the court isn't all Sadducees. So they're like, well, we're, we're not going to bring that up because we don't want to prematurely split the court uh, amongst those who believe in the resurrection and uh, those who don't. Peter perceives this. And immediately, verse 8, it says what? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, well, he begins falling down, rolling in the aisles, laughing ecstatically, uttering unintelligible gibberish, pretending it's a language. No. No. That is not how Peter behaves at all. Scripture never portrays being filled with the Spirit as something unintelligible or uncontrolled. Rather, filled with the Spirit, it maintains a bold composure while speaking forth God's Word clearly. Our Lord Jesus, He was led by the Spirit, and He walked by the Spirit in the wilderness, being tested by Satan for 40 days. And Jesus' practice was to respond to every charge and accusation by Satan through doing what? Through quoting Scripture. Both the books of Ephesians and Colossians equate being filled with the Spirit as letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the lyrics of our songs must remain intelligible as well. Filled with the Spirit, when you look at the book of Colossians, is, is the same as being filled with a true knowledge of God, which results in, in maintaining a confidence and, and a composure while you are speaking. It's a confidence in what you're saying. R.C. Sproul writes, quote, In Luke and Acts, this expression seems to refer to an intervention whereby the Spirit enables believers to speak God's message. To speak God's message. Later, later in the same chapter, uh, verse 31, we will see, quote, when they, referring to the disciples, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, 
and began to speak the word of God with boldness. That is the result of being filled with the Holy Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit is scripturally defined as a divinely empowered speech, song, or instruction that proclaims the word of God clearly. That's it. That's the only definition you find in Scripture. Case closed. Filled with the Spirit also is never in Scripture seen as drawing attention away from Jesus during corporate worship and to yourself. That's never filled with the with the Holy Spirit. Anything that robs attention from Jesus Christ uh, during the church uh, worship, uh, making yourself a distraction, that could include, um, and we don't have much of a problem with this here because we turn the temperature down, but that, that could include dressing provocatively. In, in Scripture, it could in, include, uh, in the Old Testament especially, uh, braiding your hair with expensive jewelry and gold because the average person didn't have access to such things. Or coming in in some way that, that draws attention to you while the congregation is supposed to be worshiping Jesus Christ. No, the, the, the Spirit does not draw attention away from Christ. It, the Holy Spirit always focuses our attention on Jesus Christ. Um, anything that distracts from Him is a different Spirit. Peter filled with the Spirit he boldly speaks God's truth when it needs to be said. And he begins in this way. I, th- I think Peter says this a little sarcastically. If we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, which Peter and John know isn't the charge here, but if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man uh, as to how this man has been made well, um, well then nonetheless, let's redirect Our conversation, says Peter, to what is at hand, the reason we are here today. And he says, quote, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health today. Peter says, now we're back where we need to be. Now we are right directly on the person of Jesus Christ. And he continues, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. The priests priests realize that is a reference to Psalm 118, uh, having to do with Israel's salvation. They know quite clearly That psalm said, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. And open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. The psalmist writes, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I I shall give thanks to you, writes the psalmist, for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Then he said, this is the cornerstone. This is the chief cornerstone. And Peter declares, Jesus is the rock of salvation. Any questions? I wouldn't wouldn't 
doubt that there was a moment of silence in the Sanhedrin after that. Wait, there's one more thing, Peter adds. Just so there's no confusion. Just so there's no confusion. As if Peter has been vague thus far. He tells the Sanhedrin, just in case you know, you've been thinking that you know, Jesus maybe perhaps sounds like a good option, maybe something you could work in, uh, one of several nice options on the table here. Uh, Peter provides one of the clearest statements on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ found anywhere in Scripture. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else. Actually, for added emphasis, this is this is this is uh, referring to word order. In the original Greek, the word order for the emphasis, the the negative formulations at the beginning of the sentence, it starts in no one else. That's the emphasis. In no one else there is salvation, says Peter. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must. Be saved. You cannot be saved through religious plurality. You won't find salvation in Buddha, in Muhammad, in Confucius, or even Moses. You aren't saved by being right, born into the right family or priesthood. Uh, if you want your sins to be wiped away, you're going to have to get yourself a piece of the rock. That is the only way. Christ alone is the rock of salvation. As was announced to Israel long ago, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Don't miss this. Jesus becoming the cornerstone indicates that God is now now building a work that is new. God is building a new work. Uh, Eckerd Schnabel, again, professor from Gordon-Conwell, I've quoted him a couple times. Uh, he says, quote, God is building a new building. The reference to a cornerstone suggests a monumental building, a new spiritual temple in, in which God's presence among his people is based on Jesus' death and resurrection, and thus contingent upon the acceptance of God's revelation in Jesus, Israel's Messiah, and upon faith in the significance of Jesus for his people. Precisely as God had promised in the Old Testament, God has started building something entirely new. It's a temple. How does he do it? Well, it's Not by might, nor is it by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts to Zerubbabel. By my spirit, think Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out. And what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. There it says, the top stone. I was pondering this week. You ever notice in Scripture, sometimes it refers to Christ as the, as the cornerstone and sometimes as the capstone? You ever notice that? I was pondering this, this, this week. You know, the final stone in a building project is the capstone. 
The first stone is laid in place as the cornerstone, uh, like in our passage today. Uh, I think it becomes pretty obvious that Jesus is being credited with both the start and the finish of God's temple. Schnabel again says, quote, The psalmist asserts that the stone which was rejected by the builders was eventually discovered to be the most important stone in a new building. Note that the laying of a cornerstone is the first action in the construction of a building. Why is, why is the placing of a cornerstone so essential and so important? Think about that. Why is the placing of a cornerstone so prominent? If you're like me, you, you've probably heard pastors you know, elongate on how the cornerstone, uh, it, it had to be cut imperfectly perfect, or uh, impeccably perfect. Had to be just exactly perfect. Could be no flaws. If the angles aren't precise, I have heard it said that the plumb line running out to each wall can never become straight. Well, now that sounds nice. I'm not a stone builder. I don't know for sure. Uh, That may be true. That may be true. Uh, But the geometry that I learned in school assured me that you get a rectangular foundation square and straight when stretching the plumb lines by measuring corner to corner. Is that still true, Warren Plord? Yeah, that, that's how you get walls straight. You've been a, uh, a surveyor for 40 years. That, that's how you get the walls straight. Um, so I believe, I believe the most important implied function of the setting of the cornerstone is that it signals official construction of a brand new building has begun. That makes sense? It started. It's been set in place. Uh, Peter says, with the resurrection of Jesus, I am proclaiming to you that the cornerstone to a whole new building, a new temple promised long ago by God, uh, is now in place based on the death and resurrection of Christ. Peter, Peter, I'm sure, says, uh, as he declares to, to all of Israel on, the, on that day, uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And my, my boss says, and upon this rock I will build my church. Did then... Uh, this, this new building of God, this uh, new dwelling of God, the church of Christ, did it begin at a certain point in time? Yeah. When? It's when the cornerstone was laid in place uh, and proclaimed as set at Pentecost. The building of the church has begun. It's not a hugely divisive doctrine, but, but some writers you will read, like John Calvin, uh, others, uh, especially uh, in in certain certain denominations will will claim that the Old Testament was also the church. Um, in light of Peter's proclamation of the cornerstone, I don't think that can be easily defended. I, I don't think that you can say that the church you know existed before Pentecost and before the Spirit was given and before the cornerstone was put in place. But what is much more important for us today 
is Peter shows us how the church is built. It is built by the Spirit. It is built by your being filled with the Spirit. It is built by proclaiming Christ as Savior with boldness. And wherever God takes you today, any place that God takes you today is your divine moment. God has orchestrated it. He set it up for you. He's provided uh, that opportunity for you to proclaim Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying you should get fired. You know, uh, when you're getting paid, uh, that is an exchange. Your, your company is giving you money uh, in exchange for your time. That, that time belongs to your employer, right? Um, the company owns your time in that day. It's going to be your impeccable character and your witness and your testimony to others, uh, your purity, that are going to make occasions for you to witness with coworkers off the clock. Those opportunities will come. There are plenty of places, no shortage of places, where we could be bolder that we are not. Let's just be honest. Let's just confess our sin that we are not faithful with the gospel. If Peter is not afraid of standing in front of the Sanhedrin and letting it fly, what are we afraid of? What can man do to us? Folks, it's time for us to get a piece of the rock and look a little bit more like Peter. He knew if he wasn't clear about the gospel, that no man on the Sanhedrin could be saved if he did not come with it clean and clear. And what Peter therefore tells them is the kindest act that a person could do, inviting them in to trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior. Um, Folks, apart from that, these men are going to burn in hell. Their families will likely join them. We must proclaim the gospel. Peter decides, I'm going to show them the way to Jesus Christ and eternal life. If you want to be part of what God is building, if I want to be part of what God is building, we are going to have to remain loving. There's no question about that and winsome, uh, but becoming more direct with people every day. We've got to be more direct with the gospel in a winsome manner. Every single person we meet is a divine appointment, folks, and they're on trial. They are on trial. We can only offer them a full pardon for their sins in Jesus Christ. The rest is up to the sovereign Holy Spirit. He has to do his work. He will regenerate according to his good pleasure. Oh, by the way, that is your memory verse for this week in the bulletin. Great verse. Everybody should memorize that one. Um, one thing before we go, I haven't done this for a while. I had a question this last week about the ticket to heaven. These are by each door. Got them in Spanish. You have them in English. It is an excellent tract. Not the only tract. Use whatever tract you like, but use one, okay? Uh, but we, we provide these. If you want to grab them, read through it. Be confident in what it says. And uh, I've, uh, amongst us, we've handed out thousands of these. And you rarely get rejected. Who doesn't need a ticket to heaven, right? 
And it's a clear gospel presentation. It gives person a chance uh, to know Christ, even if you're just in passing at Starbucks, and that's all you can leave with a, with a buck, I guess, in the jar is what they want. Um, opportunities arise. On the back, we usually stamp the name of the church and tell them, hey, will you come to my church too? Love to see you at my church. And when I hand these out, it's uh, sometimes you have time to talk to the person about Christ. Sometimes this is all you got but at least you left them with the gospel. So combine this. Combine this with your prayer card. So I was asked this week when I write on the prayer cards um, and I write a person's name where I might have met them and uh, I write on their ticket to heaven. Uh, Sometimes I also write, end an invite to church. What that does when you... When you pray for Larry or Mo on Wednesday night, when we bring these together, what I mean by that when I say they have a ticket to heaven is that in one shape or form, they have received the gospel. They have it. Whether I gave it to them verbally, end of the ticket, whatever it may be. And we need to pray for these folks. We need to be more diligent with the work that we're doing. Uh, Time is short. Time is short, so pray for them. Please come Wednesday night as we pray for all of your needs. If you have a prayer request, uh, please uh, fill that out, drop it in any one of our offering boxes back there, um, and we will pray for it this coming Wednesday evening uh, for you all. Let's pray the gospel will go forth and that we will be a little bold.